Brought to you by Feitner Productions. From the Unreasonable Doubt Studios, in association with Feitner Productions, this is Laying Down the Law with your host, Billy DeClerc, and co host, Curtis Rutherford. Featuring a jury of genius jokesmiths and paneled with the help of Publishers Clearinghouse, auditors from the firm of DCH Lottery Management, and selected by random draw from a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar every Tuesday and Thursday at half past never. Only a madman would bring these people together to construct an entire virtual world of law and order simply to tear it asunder with ruckus laughter. That madman is attorney Billy DeClerc. The result is a podcast blasted to the farthest reaches of the interwebs. That podcast is this one, and it starts right now. Welcome to Laying Down the Law, the law and comedy podcast hosted by me, the product of a hot weekend in Atlantic City, New Jersey, with Tina Fey and Kamala Harris. I'm Billy DeClerc. I wanted to let the listeners know that we are changing up the format a little bit, and we have brought on a co-host. You've heard him before, if you listen to the show, is Curtis Rutherford. He's been a guest several times, and at the advice of producer Jeff, he is now the co-host with the responsibility of keeping me on track and from getting distracted from, hey, what's that? Oh, uh, Curtis, how did you come into existence? I came into existence from uh, my mother was improv beat by beat and my father was <laughs> Megaplex, the improvised movie, and they came together and made me the two things that I will probably also plug later in the episode. Awesome. Well, I want to introduce my returning guest. Uh, she's an actor, comedian, improviser from the Second City. Uh, known for her performance as a scary teacher in Once Upon a Zipper and for her wacky characters as part of the improv sketch comedy juggernaut, You're on Mute. She is Joanna Senator. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you today, Joanna. And um, before we get into the law stuff for today, uh, why don't we take a break to promote some good stuff? You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. And we're back. So get out there and buy those products and use those services or see that stuff or support that nonprofit or whatever it is we just promoted. Because these are dynamic ads. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we ready to get into the law? Yeah. So we're going to do a deep dive into the law of contracts. And we're starting with the basics of what a contract is. Because this is uh, for educational purposes, I want to think about why do we even have contracts? The philosophy or the, the, the theory of contract law can fall into kind of two categories. One is, what did the parties mean by what they said? In other words, kind of a retrospective view of a contract. What, was, what did they mean at the time that they were forming a contract? And the reason that we look at what did the parties mean when they formed a contract is because we want to, as a society, find ways to deliver people the benefit of the bargain or the thing that they, the thing that they wanted to do at the time they agreed to do it. The other reason, sort of a broader social reason that we have contracts is that we want people to be able to order their relations uh, in a way that is predictable, that they can come to some kind of a, a an agreement, quite literally, and and then plan for it. And that the idea being that that creates a more orderly and a more stable society. The other thing that we look at in contract law is the social desirability or the effects of contracts prospectively into the future. And so um, one of the uh, functions of contract law is to provide a set of rules that apply when the parties forgot to make a make an agreement or they forgot to decide about some particular thing that they wouldn't anticipate or didn't know about or just didn't necessarily discuss. Many contracts are very simple um, and we uh, deal with all kinds of contracts all the time or agreements that don't provide for every eventuality. And so we want to be able to have some way of dealing with unexpected things in the future. So the law of contracts provides this set of rules outside of the agreement itself um, to kind of fill in the gaps or fill in the blanks. It's kind of like the uh, you're wishing for uh, making a wish on a genie. You don't have to put in every single possible like, OK, I want to be president, but of America currently, <laughs> I don't want to be also a potato like that's no. just the all the ex- established rules, even if we just have a very simple contract. Sure. Or the vision that comes to my mind is a walkway. You want to get from point A to point B, and let's say your contract is the bricks, but you're going to need some mortar or sand or cement to fill in the gaps. And so the law of contracts fills in the gaps in the areas that you might have missed so that people don't trip and and break a leg and then sue you, and then that would be tort law. So we also want to create incentives um, that are socially desirable so that one party that has more power or information doesn't take advantage too much of the party with less power or information. The other thing we want to do, it's sort of in contrast with the idea of default rules. Um, we all know default, like the default settings on your phone, like you got to you know, change them if you want it to work a different way. But also we want people to figure out their own terms to some extent. So we don't want uh, rules that constrain people too much at the same time. There are things that we don't want people to be able to contract to do. For example, a contract to murder someone uh, is a contract with an illegal object. And so we don't want to sanction contracts that that cause societal harm. Um, so that's sort of in, in, in contrast with the idea of freedom of contract. Does that make sense? 
So aside from like whatever, so Billy and I enter into a contract, even just that contract exists in like this world of like D&D rules and other tomes. And like there's background information <laughs> for all the stuff I forgot to put in. I said, you know, oh, hey, I'm give, I'm selling you my car for five dollars. And there's all these rules about what it means to sell a car if you have it permanently, what timely when I should give it to you. I can't give it to you on fire. All those like rules I forgot to mention. Right. Mm-hmm. But then there's also like this entire limitation set of like, oh, and also you can't put in the murder stuff. You can't put in that. I now own Billy's soul. You can't put in, I don't know what else, <laughs> yeah. limit, but like, I'm guessing you, I can't take his voice just so he has human legs, <laughs> yeah. but like standard, like you, you, this is added on rules that you might've forgot, but also don't do these things. Those are like the two, or those are two of the things that you're mentioning. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. So the, so you can, they can be considered a set of default rules or the settings that, um, that fill into contracts that you can change. You can contract around default rules. You can change them. Um, we've talked about the law of partnership previously and how you can just form a partnership on a handshake. And there's a whole set of rules that tell you about how you're going to govern your relations based upon the fact that you formed this partnership, things you never imagined, like, unlimited personal liability for the torts committed by your partner that you didn't necessarily contract for, but that are applied by the law. Those are default rules. You can change them. The other are are sort of absolute rules or limitations, that things that you cannot contract for. Another kind of philosophy of law point is that law comes from different sources. We think of laws as being things that legislators get together and legislators you know, say, well, we should make sure that there are crosswalks and they should be uh, spread this far apart. And we should maybe delegate some of our authority to a regulatory agency to decide how many feet wide it should be, but we're going to have crosswalks. And so those are, those are statutes and the statutes are enacted by a legislature and uh, legislatures don't necessarily always work, but also there's a, another source of law that's called the common law. Much of the basis for legal theory is is common law, which is a series of decisions, basically judges writing their decisions down that then inform future contracts. And we're talking about contracts. There's a decision at some point, maybe we shouldn't allow people to take out insurance policies on orphans because that creates some undesirable social consequences. We don't want to necessarily pay the insurance contract. This is a real thing. Um, People take out insurance policies on orphans. And obviously, you know, anyone who's read Dickens knows what happens to orphans. We don't want that to happen. And so that becomes then a part of the law. So there's this quasi-statutory law that comes in a lot in contract law. And I'm going to mention it in the case we're talking about today. And it's called the restatement of the law. The restatement of the law is what it sounds like. It is a restatement of things that have been established in the law. So the restatement of law there's a restatement of contracts. There's a restatement of torts. There are restatements of agency. But basically, a bunch of real smart lawyers got together and they said, well, what is the law exactly? And let's put numbers on it. So they, you know, just like they do, you know, in modern times, they didn't have a whiteboard. Maybe they had a quill or a typewriter. Who even knows? I don't know when the restatement was written, but they got together and said, what are the basic concepts of contract law that have been established through all these court cases through all the years? American common law is heavily informed by English common law because, you know, colonization. So 
a lot of legal theory goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's been gradually massaged and developed over time into this set of principles that's not really always in statutes. Sometimes it is enacted in statutes. If you ever want to have some fun, Google the maxims of jurisprudence. They are a bunch of Latin phrases. Okay. Make sure that you have safe search on. <laughs> maxims of jurisprudence. They um, they literally are the, like statements like, one who comes to equity must come with clean hands. Good advice. Just mm-hmm. classic good advice. <laughs> Pretty much. And there's a whole legal doctrine around the idea of unclean hands, right? And this Latin, I don't know the Latin phrase, but they come from Latin phrases um, that have been handed down over time. They say, you know, the law abhors a forfeiture. The law abhors a forfeiture. Like the law is this personified thing that, you know, is just horrified by forfeiture. And there's these phrases and they're, they've been made statutory under California law, they're in the 3000s range. And sometime you want to be entertained, just read these and like think of them as little legal tarot readings or, um, you know, I don't know, fortune cookies or something. It's like <laughs> legal to, legal uh, fortune cookies feels yeah, right. Yeah, I like <laughs> legal right. fortune cookies. Yeah, come yeah. with clean hands. Your lucky numbers mm-hmm. are. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're going to go down this freaking rabbit hole, I'm just going to I'm going to take you on one of my favorite little rabbit holes from law, law school, which is Lawrence Lessig. Um, who uh, mm-hmm. is a he was a Stanford law professor, um, and he wrote um, that code is law. Code is a form of law. So we live in a world surrounded by computers, and the com- coding that is within computers governs our relationships. It is a form of law. And so he came up with the idea of Creative Commons. If you've ever, if you're a creator, um, and you are using, um, you're using anything that you want to remix. Um, or license and you're getting into copyright issues, the Creative Commons was innovated as an efficient way to allow people to let go of control of their work. Since copyright is an absolute restriction on infringement and infringing use, some people want to make things that are fair fair use or that can be licensed, could be reused or whatever. And so um, they, um, Lawrence Lessig's theory about code as law uh basically said well we need to create an easy way for people to be able to let go of control of some of their work and let people remix it or or mash it up or do whatever or you know just give attribution and created all these other alternatives to copyright law that's a long way afield from contract law but let me take it back a couple of steps to where we started and come back out of the rabbit hole and let me do it in this way the law is creating this set of default rules so if we're talking about creative commons and we're talking about copyright law copyright law is setting up the ground rules for how you can order your life and share your creative works you get to adjust it a million different ways so if you want to use software to do it or you want to use contracts to do it you are given all this flexibility if you know what the applicable default rules are so that you can make the adjustments and slide those little put your phone on do not disturb or whatever it is you want to do, or, or set it on airplane mode. You can make your choices um, and, and customize your legal relations to other people. And that's really where the freedom of contract theory comes from, is that we want people to be able to customize their relationships with the world in such a way that, that fits them. 
right? Because it used to be like, oh, I write a book. I have the copyright of it. People will do the like, oh, you have to mail yourself the book or mail it to the copyright office and other stuff. But like, I then own that book. And then Lessig's thing was, well, we can change the default. And I could say, I'm releasing my book of um, erotic law maxims out into the creative <laughs> commons where you can use it, but here are the restrictions, right? You have to uh, attribute me as the erotic maxima. You have to whatever it, whatever it is, and just kind of like laying that out. So I'm not using that default like more restrictive in this case. Cor- correct. Yeah, and actually, copyright law is really interesting in the sense that it it has its origins in the U.S. Constitution, um, and it's a whole regime of laws that's been because Jefferson many, many was times. like, hey, "You guys can't steal all my writing. I wrote the whole declaration. <laughs> now you're stealing it for this. Come on, mm-hmm. let's stop." <laughs> Curtis's maxims of erotic jurisprudence can be found on Amazon and wherever else trashy books are sold. <laughs> so the basic idea of a contract is really as simple as Curtis's ex- idea of selling a dog. And I love the example of selling a dog because it's simple and everyone can understand it. Did I? I don't think I said it was a car. This car. Oh, this is why we have contracts. Because then I show up ready to sell a car. <laughs> Billy expects a dog. Good thing nobody's problem. recording this. <laughs> and so this, I might be doing my co-host duties too early. But <laughs> then to bring it back, you mentioned uh, the restatement of law stuff. I think right before we got into the the mm-hmm. rabbit hole, it was like there were all of these essential like. Are things within contract law or things within law that just judges had agreed on. But if I wanted to find out what are all of those laws, I would have to go through like 150 years of cases. And so is like the restatement of law, like a, Hey, here's the reader's digest version. Right. Exactly. And so what it is, is it's trying, it's trying to be a succinct set of a summary of rules. Um, and then if you read the full restatement, it tells you where the cases are that basically establish these various principles. So when you start with the restatement of contracts, the basic idea of a contract that has evolved through through common law over time is the idea, the basic idea of a contract is that it is a bargain for exchange for value, that there is a, an offer and acceptance. So there's two parts. I give offer. you a dog, you give me a car. Mm-hmm. You give me a dog and I give you a car. So you have um, two parties typically, or maybe you can have more, but but for a simple example, two parties, one person makes an offer. I will give you a car for your dog and acceptance. I will give you my dog for a car. And when you both, when there is a mirror image, they call it the mirror image rule. When the offer and the acceptance match each other, then you have a contract. And that contract, what the law says is that once the parties have agreed on something, that contract is enforceable. The idea being you don't want people making promises and then blowing out on it because then there's all these people running around with dogs, expecting cars, and it's madness. (laughs) The law is crazy because we're trying to, (laughs) we're trying to create predictability out of unpredictable humans. And the very specific thing that the offer and acceptance idea has to do with is the idea of intent. Did these parties intend to agree? And then if they intended to agree, what did they agree on? But there there has to be intent to agree. Does that mean like 
So we both know what we were agreeing on. I wasn't what tricked into signing the contract. Well, supposing I meant by the word dog, I meant my feet because I refer to my feet as my dog. Sure. So I'm saying I'm going to give you one dog for a car or maybe you think feet are dogs and you really love you're a cannibal. All right. So you're like, uh, I really would love to eat on one of your feet. So he's offering me because if it was just like <laughs> some mutt, I'm not going to give away my my Porsche for some mutt. But if if I can get some delicious, delicious toe jam, then I'm down. So there's a problem with intent that I'm intending to offer, you know, a four legged furry animal that barks and you're intending to get a body part that you can eat. I got really far out on the ledge there. Yeah. <laughs> The more complicated that you get, the easier it is for me to understand for some reason. So I'm not sure uh -huh. what that means about okay. myself, but um, I'm getting it. So let's get into the case of the week. Lucy versus Zimmer. Lucy versus Zimmer has to do with this funny little problem of intent. All right. The case is from 1954. The defendant, Mr. Zimmer and his wife, Mrs. Zimmer, owned a piece of land that was 471.6 acres in Dinwiddie County, Virginia, which they called the Ferguson Farm. The plaintiff, uh, Mr. Lucy, had known Zimmer for many years and previously said, I want to purchase the Ferguson Farm from you. So at some point in the future, uh, Zimmer had the dirty double dealer, had promised to sell the farm to Mr. Lucy, but later he reconsidered and decided he wasn't going to go through with the sale. I'm just going to put a little asterisk here and step out of the case because you know what we love on laying down the law? We love tangents. <laughs> we do. We do. It's the, <laughs> it's the Spokane approach. I'm sorry, Spokane approach to the law. Boo. Boo. Statute of frauds. The statute of frauds is a rule that says certain kinds of contracts must be in writing. Goes back a really long time. It was definitely the case in 1954. One of the contracts that must be in writing is a contract for the sale of land. So if Zimmer had said to Lucy, hey, I'll sell you my farm. And Lucy was like, deal. They don't have a deal because it's not in writing. Okay, so that's the deal with with that little side note important to this case statute of frauds. here in and I just want to repeat the name of this county Dinwiddie County Dinwiddie County mm -hmm, Virginia <laughs> I mean this is the most like if you were trying to come up with a parody of a farm county Dinwiddie County Dinwiddie County <laughs> yeah yeah it's true law and comedy <laughs> Lucy, Lucy and Zemmer, Mr. Lucy and Mr. Zemmer meet up in a restaurant. The restaurant's owned by Zemmer and uh, Lucy has a big bottle of whiskey, December 20th. The two of them sit down and they start drinking as one does. And as the drinking continued, they discussed the possible sale of the farm. And Zemmer went to the back and he took, turned over the receipt and he wrote, we hereby agree to sell to W.O. Lucy the Ferguson farm entirely for $50,000 so long as title is satisfactory to the buyer. Um, title, a little side note asterisk, if you don't already know, is the 
um, way in which property is held in the public records. So the public records, if you transfer property, it's recorded in the county so that everybody knows who knows what. A little monopoly card. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It is a monopoly card, essentially. <laughs> so Zemmer signs it, drunk-ass Zemmer in his restaurant, and his wife signs it as well. Now, at the trial, Zemmer said that his wife didn't want to sign it, but she agreed because he told her that it was a joke. So we just kind of picture this scenario. It's on the farm. I'm just, it's just a joke. And she says, okay. And she signs it. That's what he testified at trial. And I'm sure she said, this sounds like a hilarious joke. This is a hilarious joke. I will <laughs> yeah. sign it. That has been a mine. Always, always pulling people's legs. Was she drunk also, or was she just watching these two? I think she was just watching these two drunk jerks. Just, uh, you know, sure. Okay. So the next day, Mr. Lucy says he takes his little back of his receipt. It's a contract for the sale of the Ferguson farm, $50,000. And he goes to a title agent, his brother, and he hires an attorney to go look at the title, make sure that it's properly held and vested in the Zemmers and that he can effectively complete the purchase. Because remember that the contract said, we hereby agree to sell to W.O. Lucy, the Ferguson farm complete for $50,000 title satisfactory to buyers. So there was a condition on the sale. The attorney said, title's good. And so he wrote a letter to Zemmer saying, when are we going to close the deal? Zemmer who had by that time sobered up, I assume, <laughs> said, I never meant to sell the farm. This is a joke. It was, we were having fun. We were having drinks. It, we were buds. We were just enjoying ourselves. This is a funny, funny joke. <laughs> and at trial, he said that it was such a situation that Lucy had to know he was too drunk to agree. And they took everyone's depositions and they all testified. Well, it was ultimately found that uh, Lucy lost the case. They found that he was too drunk to make a deal and the case was dismissed. So the remedy they were asking for, a remedy is how do we fix what's wrong, obviously. So there are a lot of different kinds of legal remedies. The most common is money damages. You get a check. In this case, in a contract, there's something called specific performance. Specific performance is a contractual remedy that says, you got to do what this contract says you're going to do. So the specific performance remedy that had been requested by the Lucy's was sell us the farm for $50,000. We've got the $50,000, give us the farm. So the, the specific thing that they were asking the court to do is to make that contract effective. So they lost and they appealed and the case got reversed. They said... The, the question was, was there a contract in a situation where the person who signed it was drunk? He said he was joking. He said his wife was told that it was he was joking, and that's why she signed it. And he never, in his heart of hearts, he never really meant it when he signed it. And, and the other guy should have known because we were all drunk. And the appellate court said, no, no, you got a contract, Mr. Lucy. You got a contract. And reversed and said... You got to sell the farm. 
by the way, can I take this really quick to comedy court? Just because this like selling the farm for $50,000 is that's not a joke, right? It's only a joke if one part of that is extreme and $50,000 for a farm seems like a reasonable amount. Like if he said, Oh, I'll sell you my farm for two eggs and a dollar. That maybe is a joke. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Or right. it's like, I'll sell you my farm for one gajillion dollars. Maybe a joke, right? Yeah. Extreme. But like, I will sell you my farm for a reasonable farm price. <laughs> no part of that is a joke. I agree. And I think comedy court is an excellent idea. I think we need to expand on this idea just a little bit. I think this is it funny if there were two other farms that he had sold for other values. <laughs> here's my farm for 20,000. Here's my farm for 30,000. Here's my farm for a hundred million. Yeah, that's comedy. <laughs> I mean, I think perhaps, perhaps prank. Sure. Prank. It's arguably a prank. But what, even like, where, where's the prank? Where's the prank? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Where's the, Joanna. where's the prank in that? Well, I There's don't know a, if it's the jokes prank? on the, uh, if it's just on, the name, the but I'm just thinking of, you know, the old Charlie Brown comic where there's a football and Charlie Brown runs up and then Lucy yanks the football away. Charlie Brown tries to kick it and falls on his ass. Here, okay, the tables would... have turned. Zimmer is the one holding the football. Lucy runs up to kick the farm for $50,000 and then he jerks it away at the last thing. So it's a no, no maybe. But maybe he, already, you... he already put his signature on that piece of paper. Mm, yeah. If you pulled the contract away last second, like yeah. yoink <laughs> as he was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this feels like on uh, on the short-lived Dana Carvey show, there was a sketch with, I think, Colbert and Carell where, uh, where they would like drive up to uh, a fast food place, pay for the food, and then when the food came out, they wouldn't take it and just drive away <laughs> laughing. That was their like, quote-unquote, prank. That feels like this. Like, there, there's no prank here. You're doing the thing. Yeah. And then you're just saying it's a prank. But there's, there's nothing. You didn't do a thing. <laughs> Uh, exactly. Well, Archibald C. Buchanan agrees with you. Thank he was you. on the Supreme Court of Virginia and he wrote a unanimous decision saying the record said that Zimmer was not so drunk that he didn't know what he was doing. He, he knew what he was signing. Uh, I believe he was the one that wrote the contract. And Lucy had every reason to believe that it was a real business transaction, not just a joke. I mean, they no question that they were drunk, but... If every contract that was signed when someone was drunk was invalid, we'd have very few contracts. Also, he, in this drunkenly written contract, wrote the phrase title satisfactory to buyer, right. which is not something I right. sober would think to add in a contract. Let's get wasted and make talk about the recorded title. You don't even hold an easement, motherfucker. So Buchanan quoted from the restatement of contracts, which says that the mental assent the mental state of the parties is not what forms a contract. If the words or actions of one party has just one reasonable meaning, then the undisclosed intention is immaterial, except when an unreasonable meaning that he attaches to his manifestations is known to the other party. Let me come so back. So if I had known that you called your feet dogs when I signed knew, into this. We had, we had a lot of conversations. It, 
Great callback. Yeah. We knew, I always talk about my feet being dogs and you're like, one of those days I'm going to eat one of your dogs. And I'm like, yeah, I know one day I'm just going to cut it right off. And in that context, yeah, we have a crazy meaning. Yeah. I'm going to sell you my dogs. My, I gave you my dog for a car. You mean like starving. I know what this means. (laughs) Dinner time. Um, And so Buchanan's uh, opinion said that there should be specific performance. Zemmer has to honor the contract. He's got to sell the Ferguson farm. Lucy obviously has to pay the $50,000 and that transaction had to go through. Is specific performance just we're going through with it? Like yeah, specific performance contract? is in order to perform the contract. You must specifically perform the contract as written. So it comes up in real estate transactions where you, you know, if you have a, you know, a a purchase of a home or something like that. And one party tries to back out, they order because you want the property. You money damages. I, I, how would you, the way you could do money damages here, if you didn't get specific performance is if Lucy got a really good deal and the farm was really worth $75,000. So Zemmer could maybe get out of it by saying, well, you were damaged $25,000 because you, you got it for below what it's really worth. And, you know, I should have sold it to you for that. But because we believe real property is unique, it's special. Every piece of real property is different. It's all stolen. And so therefore, um, when we have a transaction, you want to actually get the piece of property that you transacted for. So the point here is that your secret intention doesn't matter. It's the, the phrase that you often see is the objective manifestation of intent objective. What does it say on the piece of paper? The piece of paper says farm $50,000. And so it doesn't matter if you really had a different meaning. It's what does the face of the contract say? So this is called the objective theory of contract formation. That's the case. Questions about the case? So he got a farm. Yeah. He got a farm. There's more to the story as there always is. So there's a historical background to this case, um, which I found on Wikipedia credit where credit's due. So Lucy was actually an agent for the pulp and paper industry. And so he was in the business of going around town and buying up property in order to basically cut down trees. And so Lucy had made all these shady deals all over the place to buy buy up people's property at unfairly low prices and then resell them for huge profit. And so he was basically just this very aggressive salesman. Some of the commentators have said that it's likely that the people that heard the actual case knew that Zimmer would never have sold the farm for $50,000 if he was in his right mind, that he had to be just bombed, blistered, plastered, just destroyed, drunk. You know, Lucy was the one that walked into the restaurant with a bottle full of whiskey, plies him full of alcohol, convinces him to sell the farm, and then and then sues to make him perform the contract. That's like some high pressure sales. There's no cooling off period. This explains a little bit of like, Lucy's brother was like a title agent. Like he was like ready to go. He was like, oh yeah, I've got the contract. I know exactly the four places I need to go. And my brother happens to be one of them. <laughs> right. And apparently my employer is the, the other. <laughs> right. So so the question is, you know, even though Lucy ultimately won at the at the higher court level, is this the right result? Do we think that you should be able to form a contract when you are bombed out of your mind? So that is it for the law stuff. Any more questions, comments, concerns about law stuff? So basically, even though he was inebriated, like 
there's like legally it was fine. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. the, I guess that's the policy point to ask is, is do we think that that's a good policy? Should someone uh, have, should there be some kind of um, proof that a person is reasonably sober before they sign a contract? But then like Don Draper is never signing a contract in his entire fictional well, life. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lucy is so shady. And now knowing all this other stuff, now I don't agree with the decision because he has a, um, uh, what is that called? He has um, an ulterior motive. Well, yes, that, but this is a reoccurring thing that he keep, he's done to how many people? Who's to say that he's, I mean, he brought the whiskey. Who's to say he's not going everywhere, bringing the whiskey, getting people drunk and buying up all these properties. Now I'm just upset. Now I'm going to time travel. Uh, I used to uh, be a bartender and I managed many bars. And probably saw all sorts of contracts being signed mm -hmm. late at night. Uh, I, I did see divorce papers be served in front of me uh, to uh, <laughs> the man came in, sat at the bar. Wife had no idea and got, they ordered a drink. I made it for them. I turned around to close out the check and he served her with divorce papers Ooh. and then left. Did he stiff And then you? I had to clean up the mess. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. <clears throat> Service of process. I was thinking that that would be um, back in college. My friend and I brainstormed a movie that was going to be about process servers. I don't know if that movie has <laughs> ever been made, but I think it would be a really good buddy comedy. Two kind of guys down on their luck who are like, what job can I do with no skills? You could be a process server. And then they just, it's their misadventures as they go about serving <laughs> lawsuits to people all over town. And then it's like, oh, this one's a divorce. Bah, ha, ha. This one's a traffic accident. Bah, ha, ha. That's all the law stuff we're going to do right now. We're going to tell you some more about some cool people doing cool stuff for money or otherwise. And when we come back, I promise an improvised journey of an unknown duration with unknown destinations and unknown characters. Anything could happen. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the dire warnings, and we all got scared. It's the story of a world pandemic. You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. <laughs> and we're back. That was a dynamic ad. That was amazing. <laughs> it was. It was, it was super ever. dynamic. It was super dynamic. Honey, honey, come over here. Uh, come over here. I've got this great joke. Oh, okay, dear. Yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna sell 
our house to this guy. And he's going to give us some beans. Okay. This is good. Okay. Was that the joke? That's the joke. So (laughs) go ahead and take the beans. I've got, I've, uh, I was in the basement. I, I, you know, I brought out some contracts. I wrote them up. This is good. This is good. I'm going to give him right. Everything we, so I wrote down in the contract, everything we owned, I listed everything out. Okay. Well, I, you, so uh, how many beans is it going to be? Oh, well, that's good. It's uh, it's one house worth of beans. Uh, we should probably define that more specifically in the contract. What's a house worth of beans? Seven? Uh, yeah, it's 12? 12 beans. 12. Okay. So, I'm going to give I'm going to give him the house, everything we own. Um and it says any children that are inside that can't be removed in a timely fashion. Okay, and the cats? Oh, the cats yeah, the are cats, the, the cats are included the cats in technically the deal? are part of the house yeah and then um so i'm gonna sign this but um for sure it's a joke right i mean obviously it's a joke for 12 beans oh honey if you saw me write this i wrote it so sarcastically every word i went yeah i'm selling my house for 12 oh my cats whom i love my children whom i love a little bit more absolutely put it i wrote this so sarcastically honey of course it's a joke okay okay yeah no problem at all i'm definitely i'm gonna sign this great Um, so um I, there's this just smell that I'm smelling right now and I um I'm just a little confused. I feel like maybe maybe you've had some gin. Oh, I've had quite a bit of gin. Yes. Okay. Yes. I I uh well I mean, you know, the seller, he's he's out back. He's measuring the the property right now cuz you know, he goes all the way for a joke. <laughs> he's measuring <laughs> it. He's got a friend of his down here he's from the surveyor's really office. He's it's really in it. This and, guy is a cut up and a half. Okay, and he had some of the gin too? Uh he didn't have any gin. He gave he was nice. He gave me all the gin. He said, drink it up, Ginny boy, and just kept like <laughs> pouring it down my throat, which was nice of him. Again, real funny, real nice guy. So this joke, oh, it's the least I could do for him. I, I love it so much. I do. I really do. Um, I just, I'm, I just, one more question. Um, the, you, I see that you're writing it on this beautiful contract paper. It, yeah. That doesn't come off to me so much as a joke. And so I'm just, um, just, I'm just making sure it's all written in, like, it's all italicized so that we know it's sarcastic. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'll, I've been, I'm going to like tilt it a little bit to the right as I write so I can write more italics. Cause yeah, yeah that's good. Then it's yeah, real yeah. clear. It's like, then it's like, oh, so, okay. yeah, that's sarcasm. Also, if you see, I signed my name really big, John Hancock, like, which we know me, I'm going to sign my name tiny. I'm a demure man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So then I should sign my name. Um, maybe I'll do it backwards. Ooh, that'll be good. Yes. <laughs> that, that, I hope I'm I'm adding to the joke for you. Yeah. But also sign it frontwards, just normal. And um, yeah, just so that the joke's really, you know, like an official joke. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I just did it. That's amazing. Look at that beautiful signature. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Now we need to get it joke notarized. I don't know if we actually need to get it notarized, but it would just well, add to the joke. Get yeah, the little let's stamp, get let's the stamp. do that. You know who's here is uh, 
uh, John is here, our notary friend, the neighbor from next door. Hey, uh, notary John here. Always on the spot to notarize anything, whether it's a joke or not. I notarize jokes, riddles, puns. You got it. I'll notarize it. What do you got here? Well, we've got this contract, but wait, John, I still, I don't know. When you notarize a riddle, like, okay, let's say I've got a riddle, right? Okay. The, how about the classic, you know, what is on, what has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs at evening, right? What are you notarizing there? Wouldn't you like to know? Bazinga! Riddle notarized. You just notarized it. I, I, I just notarized it. Okay. Ooh, wow. you notarize? No, that's how I notarize all my riddles. You work fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. don't even need the answer to the riddle? Don't need the answer. Don't need your ID. Just boom. Just a yeah. mysterious question. Are you you, you, you got to go to notary school to know exactly how you notarize a riddle as opposed to a joke, as opposed to a pun. There's different ways to notarize each of those forms of comedy and mystery, as it were. We cut to notary school. All right, people, welcome to notary school. Look to your left, look to your right. Now look to your left again. Notarize that person as an official student of notary school. Now everybody is officially notarized because we are sitting in a circle, of course. And so every single person that notarized the person to the right, you get it. You all know what's going on. Anyways, a lot of you think you're going to make it out of here. Notarizing left or right. You have a lot to learn, a lot to learn about what can and cannot be notarized. Yes, we have a question. I'm just a little bit confused. I'm just a little bit confused. Yes, go ahead. Okay. So you said we're sitting in a circle and I look mm-hmm. left and right. And that is how I notarize is, was there another step? I'm just, there was another step. You notarize the person to your left. I notarize the person to my left. So, um, the first part was just to stretch your neck a little oh, bit. I see, Get I ready. Said, be loose. Uh, you know, yes. Uh, I, said, I have a question at about three yeah, o'clock. It's, okay. Hi. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sitting next to the gentleman that just asked the question. Um, and he, I don't believe I'm notarized then because he didn't know how to do it. So I think that I notarized my person, but then I'm unnotarized and I'm feeling like maybe I, maybe I, I'm just, oh, I don't fit in here. I would be oh. more than happy to notarize you. Oh, there you I'd go. I'd be more than happy to. I'm just going to, you know, thing. what's your name? Denise. Okay. Denise. Mm-hmm. It's been done. And now you know. I felt that. That's amazing. I'm notarized. I'm part of the group. That's how simple it is, right? Everybody here gets their notoriety. They get exactly why they're important. And now, of course, the big question is what can you and can't you notarize? Um, no, I, I, I read the textbook in preparation yes. for class. So I'm. I understand that you could um, you could notarize um, sports bets. Absolutely, and, somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and tablecloths. Yes, which is important, especially for magic tricks. Magicians always they want to say, "Hey, I'm going to pull this tablecloth under," but is it a real tablecloth? It's the magic equivalent of looking under the sleeves. That's right. I went to a, I went to a magic show the other day and the magician was like, is there a notary in the crowd? And I was like, oh, I wish I could say I was, but I haven't gone to notary school yet. 
There's a little tip. Hear. Most magicians keep their own notaries and they just have them as plants. Anyways, we had a question over there. I, uh, again. I did, I, yes. It's me again, Denise. I had a question. Um, so um, this is a little bit of confusing because I was um, <clears throat> trying to uh, notarize my sister's bar and that um, I was reading that the uh, actual pore spouts are not notarizable. And then the bottle is, and I'm just wondering when those two objects touch each other, then does that not, are they not all notarized together or is that Okay, uh, you're asking about the transitive properties of notarization. Uh, this is a third year question. Okay, I appreciate the question. Okay, but Thank I can't you. answer that. To that, you have to go several steps up oh. to the grand professor. Oh, he, I've only heard stories about the you've grand only, professor. You'll hear him. He teaches from behind a curtain. There's a giant flaming head. That teaches the classes. But who dare oh, no. oh, mention no. the grand professor? Um, I'm so, it was grand professor Denise, speak your speech, oh willing young notary. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. No, to thanks are needed. Please proceed with your question. I am busy. Yes, I'm so sorry. Um, so in the case of uh, notarizing um, uh, liquor bottles, which, yes, for sure. We Cut can to the chase, Denise. <laughs> so, okay, yes, sir. Uh, so the pour spout, um, it's not notarizable. And then I'm putting it in the bottle. So then, therefore, is that whole piece the two objects are they both notarized what swims in water never drinking covered in scales never clinking fish oh you have beaten me ah! oh my gosh oh no oh no i'm melting oh my goodness so the problem with the grand professor of notarization is he did pick one of the easier riddles as his <laughs> defeat riddle. Now, you will know every every notary public will have a defeat riddle. It's it's part of the Rumpelstiltskin code, <laughs> of course. So this is a great lesson of why you should pick a harder riddle. Don't pick one of your easier riddles, because otherwise you're going to end up in a pool of goo like uh, the professor. Will, we cut will there be a... Oh. No, you go. No, 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 you go. We cut to the outside of a house. 41... 42, 43, 44. Now for the east to west measurements. One, two, three. Oh, hello. I see you've sobered up. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I sobered up and um, I, I seem to remember that, that, you know, come to think of it. Um, all the other houses on the block you've bought in a series of jokes. And I'm just wondering now if I should be a little bit worried. Oh, this is a very funny joke. Four, 
five. I think I'll paint it green. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Green. That would be. That would be. Wait. I can't. Wait. Sorry. I am just pretty worried. I. I did sign it to you. It's now you know notarized. I gave it. It was clearly a joke. You can see it's slanted. It's in italics. It's sarcastic, right? So oh, it's I, not a joke. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello, hello, bro- hello oh. brother. Oh, hello, brother. I'm so glad you're here. This young man doesn't seem to know that he needs to turn over his children and cats. In oh, how ridiculous! I have had the title in my hand. Ready oh, to you go. did check the title. Yes, that is my job. Oh, yes. And let's measure his living room for our in-home hot tub, don't you think? Oh, what a magnificent idea. We'll put it right in the middle of the living room where his children used to play and build with blocks. And then we'll have built-in servants with the children and the cats. Oh, this would be a lovely way for us to retire. Oh, yes, it's a very funny joke. Uh, okay. Of course it's a joke. Do not hear our voices. <laughs> we are speaking uh-huh. in a jocular uh-huh. fashion. Uh-huh. Jokes. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, uh, my, my children are cr- are crying and my cats are also uh, crying. So I just want to make sure they don't seem to understand the joke. And I, again, I think I don't understand the joke now that I'm uh, more sober. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just the um, joke that you wouldn't own my house? Well, I think it's time we take you to comedy court. Um, uh, <laughs> comedy court. <laughs> he doesn't know what a joke is. Welcome to comedy court. I, of course, am Judge Waffner, the judge of comedy court. Welcome, everybody. And, of course, my bailiff, who's also me. What a joke. Anyways, let's see who's first. Okay, we have, of course, the defendant. Defendant? That was my gavel. Uh, we have a situation here where this man doesn't know what a joke is. He <laughs> sold us his house while intoxicated, and he thinks that it is a joke that doesn't require him to give us his house as well. Oh, wait, but I didn't. I don't even know what the joke is. I, 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 a disorder in the court. Disorder in the court. You can't talk while somebody else is talking. This was number one rule of comedy court. Okay. Okay, so now let's see what the other guy says. Now, you, Mister Boring, go ahead and say, uh, "What do you? Why do you think this isn't a joke?" Oh, I just—I don't really think it's a joke at all. At all. I just—I I signed a contract. I—I I just don't. Objection! Irrelevant. You can't object to opening statements. Everybody knows that. That's the rule of normal court and in comedy court. All right, let's see. We got a witness here. Our witness is uh, looks like looks like uh, the brother. I call uh, my brother. <laughs> yes, yes. Hello, everyone. Brother, yes. please take the witness stand. Doop, 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 doop. I like to walk and sing. <laughs> May I proceed, your hilariousness? 
Of course, he did the walking and singing song, so we all know he's at the stand now. Go ahead. Uh, brother, dear brother, did I buy this poor sucker gentleman's home? Well, yes, indeed you did. I have written the title, we've signed the contract, and we have measured the land and claimed it for our own. I have nothing further for this witness, your hilariousness. The prosecution rests. <laughs> uh, well, well, sorry, I've I've got a couple questions. I was just looking under uh, comedy case law for um, uh, Chicken V Road. And in Chicken V Road, it, it emphasizes that, you know, to be a joke, you have to have an expected outcome and then the unexpected outcome right which must be different from the expected now you you bought a house what's the expected outcome of buying a house that we bought the house and that we're leaving the house and that we will not tear down the trees to make paper okay but you did buy you so you bought my house and then you took it that that is the expected outcome there's no unexpected outcome if i bought the house right but then it turns out that it was something else like maybe the phrase like what he bought the farm like if i died if i like oh i wanted to buy his farm and then he really bought the farm and died that's maybe a joke that's according to that but like according again to chicken v road it it establishes clearly you need a separate outcome that's that's right you need a different outcome everybody knows that like if somebody says i murdered him and then it turns out i just murdered him by telling him a good joke and i killed the audience that's an unexpected joke objection your honor go ahead the prosecution unrests itself and calls this gentleman who sold me his house a surprise witness we're going to allow it uh, okay. Yes. Uh, so, Take okay. I'm wa- uh, uh, walk, walk, walk. I'm, I'm walking and talking and I'm now at the stand. Okay. Yes. Uh, yes. You have. <clears throat> yes. Sir. Who sold me the house? Your, your name is bones. My name is bones. Uh, they made Mr. a show funny about bones, me. funny bones. Yes. It is unrelated to this, I think, but um, yes, my mother's what? name was funny and my father's name was Bunny. And so I took objection, move to strike what? irrelevant. Uh, it's stricken from the record. Strike the record. Oh, taken out a record of 78 RPM. You're out of the court. Stricken. What was the expected outcome when you signed your contract? That was a joke. What did you expect to happen? Oh, I thought we would laugh. Like, how could anybody sign a contract about this? It's not really a contract. It's because it was beans. And then when you came back, another question. When you came back and I was measuring the house, was that expected? No, I guess I didn't really expect you to go through it. I have nothing further from this witness. The prosecution rests again. Okay, well, wait, I'm going to ask myself a question. Did I not? Unexpected objection to my own court. Objection to meta. You can't go meta and ask yourself <laughs> questions. Everybody knows comedy dies when it becomes too meta, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> All right, I give the full amount to the prosecution <laughs> because this is a criminal 
comedy court. It's not a civil comedy court at all. So I give the full amount. They get both the house, the beans, the original beans. That's right. You don't even have to give them the beans anymore. And then I give them, of course, the trophy for best comedy joke. All right, next up, let's see. We got a lot. We got a lot on the old dockers today. Let's see. We got some more laws. We have, of course, uh oh, we know the we know the next one. It is the rule of thumbs. Who has too many thumbs? And then after that, we have another case, and that case is uh what we have the case of Dinwiddie versus the namer of Dinwiddie, who says Dinwiddie's too crazy of a name for non-comedy court. And I say it's just crazy enough. And scene. <laughs> the moral of that story is when you go to comedy court, never cite a case you haven't read. Clearly, as we see here, um, the man who sold his house, Mr. Funny Bones, had not read Chicken v. Road and hadn't fully prepared his brief. Had he briefed the case, I'm sure he would have made a much better argument. But unfortunately, he loses the house because clearly he proved that it was a joke under the authority of Chicken versus Road. Absolutely. And That's we know, of course, thing. from the restatement of law that happened after <laughs> Chicken v. Road. That was the restatement of comedy. The restatement, <laughs> restatement of comedy, which the key to any comedy, as we know, Restatement of comedy, the That's rule right. of sevens. Repeat everything seven, <laughs> seven times. times. <laughs> this is the sitcom law. Oh, that's perfect. Yep, sitcom and law. Well, that was awesome. Thank you both for uh, for doing this. Curtis, I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. Joanna, I'm going to have you back real soon. Before we go, how about some shameless self-promotion? I'm, I'm on Instagram. Real easy. Joanna Senator. That is Senator with the E at the end. Um, I have something exciting coming up. Uh, look for a YouTube channel starting uh, very soon labeled Killing It. It will be a very funny show and some really funny little bits coming up as teasers to something bigger coming in the near future. That's Killing It on YouTube. Check it out right now. And Curtis, uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at actually Curtis on the Instagram, Twitter, all of the other places. Also at curtisrutherford.com. That's R-E-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D.com. Um, and you can find me uh, at anywhere Megaplex, the improvised movie is playing, which we will likely be have a show at The Yard, at theyardtheater.com. Or somewhere else. Who knows? If it's somewhere else, <laughs> you'll find out in a way that I haven't figured out. Possibly magic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And you can find me on Twitter, mostly at Max Hedrum ESQ, Max Hedrum the lawyer, Max Hedrum ESQ. Um, and I'm on Instagram, but I never post. That's all for today. Thank you, Curtis. And thank you, Joanna. <laughs>